Church, if you've got your Bibles this morning, I hope you do, please turn in them to Genesis chapter 24. Uh, Genesis chapter 24 is the longest chapter in Genesis. It's 67 verses long. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to make our way through all of it this morning. This is part of the ending of the story of Abraham, part of the epilogue of his story. As the focus of Genesis begins to shift from him, from him to his son, Isaac, uh, we're introduced in chapter 24 to Rebecca, who becomes the wife of Isaac. And she's presented to us in this chapter as kind of like a female Abraham. Um, as God calls her to leave Mesopotamia and, like Abraham, go to Canaan. And she, like Abraham, agrees to leave her homeland and her family and all that she knows and go to an unknown land. And for her, at least, this means to marry an unknown man. There are lots of different characters that we'll be introduced to in uh, the, the narrative of chapter 24, uh, like the servant of Abraham, uh, Rebecca herself, her brother Laban, who will. Um, we'll get to know more about later in the Genesis story and uh, her father, Beth Yule. But even though there are lots of characters in this story who are acting and making choices and making decisions and having an impact on the narrative, one of the things that's clear is that the focus in this story is on God's providential oversight over everything that happens. And so I want you to hear that as we read. I'm going to read the entire chapter this morning. So just follow along in your copy of God's Word, um, all of chapter 24. This is the Word of God. Now Abraham was old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but that you will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give you this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, 
Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abram's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lapped down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw waters for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels. And he said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to my father's, to the house of my father's, my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. But Rebekah had, had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out, ran out toward the man to the spring. And as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man and, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and harnessed the cam unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have come to say. And they said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has had. He has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife or my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. 
then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O oh Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the water of the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for you camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. And she quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank. She gave, she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arm. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for, for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard the words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. And he also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the man who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But the servant said to them, do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Laharoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there, was, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Let's pray. Our kind and gracious Father, we thank you so much for uh, the opportunity for us to gather um, in this way on this morning, uh, both to worship you and to sit under the teaching of your word. 
Uh, we thank you so much for this book, um, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have given to us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. And so uh, we do pray, Father, that you would do just that this morning, uh, that you would uh, speak through me, uh, that you would anchor me to your text, and that you would allow us, Father, to understand what you're telling us in this word and how we are to apply it to our lives so that you might be glorified. I pray that you would do that in the heart and mind and life of every single person, wherever they are this morning, sitting and hearing from you, from your word. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, long chapter, right? Um, the setting of the story of chapter 24 um, is, of course, right after the death and burial of Sarah in chapter 23. So that means now there's no mother in Israel. Uh, Israel is without a mother. Um, add to this the fact that now we're told Abraham is old and advanced in years, and the fact that we'll learn in the next chapter that now Isaac is um, about 40 years old, and he has no prospect of a wife. And as we take all of those things together, we, one begins to wonder how the remainder of God's promises to Abraham are going to be fulfilled. We know that God had promised Abraham offspring, and of course that had begun to be fulfilled with the birth of Isaac 40 years earlier. God had also promised land, and as we learned in the last chapter, the fulfillment of that promise began when Abraham was able to secure Ephraim's field in the cave at Machpelah as a burial plot for Sarah, his wife. But what about the promise that his offspring would one day become a great nation? And what about the promise that through his offspring, through Abraham's seed, if you will, all the nations of the earth would be blessed? Those promises at this point remained unfulfilled, and they would continue to be unfulfilled as long as Isaac remained single. So that's the setting that gives rise to this opening scene in chapter 24. We're told right off the bat that Abraham was old and well advanced in years. I love how he says both of those things. He's not just old, but he's also well advanced in years. Uh, Abraham, we know, was about 10 years older than his wife Sarah. And Sarah had recently passed, and she was 127 years old when she died. And so that means Abraham is at least 137 years old far too old to be sauntering back to Mesopotamia to find a wife for his son. In fact, if you're 137 years old, I think it's you might be a little bit too old to be sauntering anywhere, uh, much less from Canaan to Mesopotamia. Um, and by the way, the cultural setting here was one in which there were arranged marriages, which I would say, the closer I get to my kids getting of marrying age, uh, the more and more I think that's probably a really good idea. Kind of like that idea. I didn't like that idea when I was 19, 20, 21. Uh, but now that I'm a parent, it's not too bad of an idea. But anyway, that's, that's why Abraham feels this obligation uh, to find a suitable wife for his son, Isaac. And so Abraham's too old to do this himself. And so he enlists the help of his servant. Verse 2 calls this servant the oldest of his household the one who had charge of all that he had. So this was his most tenured servant. This was his most trusted servant. 
because this mission that he would be sent on was one of great importance. And that mission was to find a wife for his son, Isaac. But as he does so, Abraham makes the servant swear to him. And he does this by putting the servant's hand under his thigh. Now that seems kind of awkward to us. Um, Today, we might ask someone to raise their right hand and pledge, or in a court, we would ask someone to place their hand on a Bible and and swear an oath. Uh, But in that culture, he makes them swear by putting his hand under his thigh. But he he makes them swear and and swear this oath that he won't get a, a Canaanite wife for a son, but instead that he'd go back to his country, back to Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia, back to his kindred and his family and get a wife from there. And when the servant asked whether, whether or not Isaac could come with him, just in case that woman would not want to return with him back to Canaan, Abraham made him swear again and, and, and ensure that he would not bring his son back to his family. See, Abraham believed that everything was riding on Isaac being in Canaan. They had waited so long for both of those promises to be fulfilled, the offspring and the land. And so he didn't want to run the risk of Isaac wanting to stay back in his father's homeland. And so, no, he wanted to ensure that the child of promise would stay behind in the land of promise. And so he sends his servant off on this mission. And as he does so, Abraham promises him that the Lord would send an angel before him to show him the way and guide him to a wife for Isaac. And so he promised that God would send divine guidance to lead him in his way. And so the servant gathers together um, 10 of his master's camels, and he packs up all kinds of treasures and gifts to be given to a prospective wife and their family. And he sets off on this 400-mile journey from Canaan up to Mesopotamia, as we're told, to the city of Nahor. Now, I think it's interesting that that 400-mile journey that would have taken uh, about three or four weeks, those three or four weeks are covered in one half of one verse in this story. And then just as with the bartering for the burial plot back in chapter 23 last week, the action of the narrative at this point, slows down to a snail's place, to where it now takes some 51 verses to cover a narrative that in the setting takes place over the course of one evening and one morning. And just as we learn from this this literary feature in chapter 23, when the author slows down the pace of the narrative so drastically like that, it's an indication to us of what he's focusing on. And so apparently the the journey itself from Canaan to Mesopotamia was not nearly as important for Moses' purpose in writing this story as was what happened when the servant arrived in Mesopotamia. So they get there, and they go to the well of the city where the women come out to, to draw their water. And the first thing he does is he prays. He prays in verse 12. He says, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, Please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master, Abraham. And then the servant puts out this fleece, if you will, before the Lord. And he asks the Lord to let the woman who gives him water and who draws water for his camels, he prays, Lord, let her be the wife for my master's son. 
And then before we're told before he had even finished speaking those words to the Lord, this beautiful young woman named Rebecca comes out to fetch water from the well. And then Moses almost parenthetically tells us, the reader, who this woman was. She is the daughter of Bethuel, whom we were told at the end of chapter um, 22 uh, was the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, who was the brother of Abraham. Now, the servant in the story doesn't know who she is, but we do. To him, she's just very attractive. And so he decides to test out his fleece that he's just put before the Lord. And so he runs up to her. He asks her for a drink from the jar of water that she's carrying. And immediately she brings the jar down from her shoulder and gives him a drink. And then she says those key words, I will also draw water for your camels until they have finished drinking. And of course, the, the servant probably goes, cha-ching, that's the one. That's got to be the one. That's got to be the wife or uh, my, uh, my master's son, Isaac. One commentator that I was reading noted that uh, camels, um, when they're thirsty, can drink upwards of 25 gallons of water um, at a well in one sitting. It's incredible. 25 gallons of water per camel. And we're told that there were 10 camels here. And so this commentator suggests that if the typical jar in that time held about three gallons each, that would take some 80 to 100 trips to the well to draw enough water to let all of these camels drink their, their fill. And so this was proving to the servant that Rebecca was not just a pretty face. She was demonstrating that she was also very kind and generous, very hospitable, and that she obviously was not afraid of hard work. We're told then in verse 21 that the servant gazed at her in silence as she drew the water, the whole time wondering if perhaps the Lord had in fact given him success in his mission to find a wife for Isaac. Now, he, he, cert he certainly thought so. So he immediately reaches into his bag of treasures and gifts, and he pulls out a, a gold nose ring, and he pulls out a couple of gold bracelets and gives them to her, two very valuable pieces of jewelry in that day. And what's he doing? He's trying to impress Rebecca. He's trying to win the approval of both her and her family. So he asked whose daughter she was and whether or not there was room in her father's house for them to spend the night after their long journey. And when Rebecca reveals her family history, that she's the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she had born to Nahor. When, she, when he hears this, the servant immediately falls to his knees and he bows his head and we're told that he worships the Lord because he knows that God had indeed led him, guided his steps to come to the very house of his master's kindred. So he praises God and he says in verse 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. So he praises God first for his steadfast love. Now that's the word that we've come to know in Genesis in Hebrew as chesed, or we might say the transliteration chesed. This is God's covenantal love his never-ending, steadfast, covenant love. And so he praises God for his kesed, his steadfast love, and for his faithfulness toward his master. 
And that word faithfulness speaks to his promise-keeping faithfulness, that, that he's a God who keeps all of his promises. Now, by the way, both of those words would have meant a great deal to the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness as Moses shared these stories about Abraham and Isaac with them centuries later. They, too, at that time, were dependent on God's covenant-keeping love and his promise-keeping faithfulness as they awaited their return to the promised land. Now, before I go any further, I'm going to have to plug in my computer because I just realized that it is not plugged in. So hang on just a moment. This is part of the joy of having to do this from your home and having to adjust mid-screen. So there we go. We are not going to run out of power now. So anyway, now, meanwhile, back to our story. Uh, Rebecca now has, has met the servant. He's given the jewels. He's told her the story. So she runs home. She tells her family what's happened in this encounter at the city well. And when her brother Laban sees the gold jewelry, the, the, the nose ring in her nose and the bracelets on her hands, her, her wrists, he, man, he hightails it to meet this man who's come to town. Uh, we'll, we'll soon discover as we make our way through Genesis that this Laban guy is very greedy and very materialistic. And he shows some of his colors here as he's motivated by the sight of this gold jewelry, which has been given to his sister. So Laban runs out to meet this man and he invites him back to their father's house. And he helps him get settled with his camels and his men. And then they set this grand feast before them. But before the servant sits down to eat, he says, guys, I got something I need to say to you first before I eat. So then he gives this, this long speech, which, by the way, is the longest speech recorded thus far in Scripture. And he explains who he is. He explains where he comes from. And they learn that he's from uh, long lost Abraham's house, Nahor's brother. And then the servant goes on to explain that Abraham had a son. And this son needs a wife, and that he had been sent by Abraham to go and find a wife. And he explains the whole ordeal of what happened between he and Rebekah at the well, and that he had put out this fleece before the Lord, and that the Lord had made it clear, at least to him, that Rebekah was, in fact, the one. And then after explaining all that, the servant puts the ball back in their court in verse 49, and he says this, Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. In other words, are you going to let her bring her back? To, are you going to let me bring her back with me to be the wife of Isaac or not? If so, great. If not, then I'll just keep on looking. And they respond in the next, next couple of verses, verses 15, 51. They say this, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So incredibly, they recognized that this was Yahweh's doing. This was, this was God's doing. And so they, they say, in essence, you know what? It doesn't matter what we think about this. Clearly, this is from God. So take her. And let her be the wife of Isaac, as the Lord has spoken. And then as she leaves, the family prophesizes 
prophesies over her in verse 60. And they say, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And they prophesy this, not realizing that the Lord will, in fact, carry out this prophecy through her future son, Jacob, many years later. Noted Bible scholar and professor Sidney Grenadus points out um, in his commentary that there are four distinct conflicts in this chapter, um, each of which um, must be resolved in turn. And with each of those conflicts, there is rising tension in the narrative. The first, the first conflict is, will the servant be able to find a suitable wife for Isaac? Um, is he going to be able to find the wife that Abraham sent him off to find? And, and, and the tension rises as, uh, as the servant sets out on this journey to do this. And of course, that conflict is resolved at the well as the Lord leads him to Rebekah. The second conflict is whether or not her family will be willing to let her go to this faraway land and marry a stranger. And of course, that conflict is now resolved with her father and her brother recognizing Yahweh's hand in this, recognizing that this is the Lord's doing, and they give consent for her to go. There are two more conflicts in this narrative that remain to be resolved. The third conflict now is, will Rebecca herself be willing to go right away? This conflict is resolved in the next few verses of the chapter, as the family asks for her to be able to stay with them 10 days, but then the servant says that he's so convinced that the Lord is in this whole ordeal, he doesn't want to delay in finishing his mission. And so they say, well, it's up to Rebecca whether or not she wants to go ahead and go. And she agrees to go. She says faithfully in verse 58, she says, I will go. And in doing so, she's, she's mirroring the willingness of Abraham some 60 to 70 years previously when he also left his home and willingly and faithfully left his homeland and his family and all that he knew in Mesopotamia and set out for a strange land. So now in her willingness to go, the third conflict is resolved. And then there's a fourth and final conflict in the closing verses, and that is, will Isaac, when they get back to, to Canaan, will Isaac be willing to marry this unseen bride? And in the closing six verses of chapter 24, that conflict too sees its resolution. As the servant and Rebecca arrive back in Canaan, and Isaac learns about all that happened and hears about how God had led the serpent and the servant, and um, he takes Rebecca into his mother's tent and she becomes his wife. And so interestingly, the chapter begins with his mother's tent empty because his mother had died, and the chapter ends with his mother's tent now fulfilled because now he has a wife in Rebecca. So an amazing story. Um, fairly long story. So what are we to learn from this incredible story about Abraham's servant who goes off on this 400-mile mission trip to search for a wife for, for uh, Abraham's son, Isaac? Now, we have a couple of different approaches we could take when determining what our takeaway should be from a passage of Scripture like this. One approach that we could take might be what we, what we could call uh, morality emulation. 
um, following the example of the characters in the story, where we notice the good and noble character traits of some of the folks in the story, and we set them up as examples that we should then follow or emulate. So take, for example, the servant in the story, um, who faithfully follows his master's instructions. So we would say, according to this approach, that we too should faithfully follow our master's instructions. Or like the servant, uh, we should bring our needs before the Lord in prayer as he prays for success when he gets to the well, that we too should bring our needs before the Lord in prayer. And like the servant, that we should thank God when he gives us success in our endeavors. Or again, like the servant, maybe we should try to determine God's will by putting out a fleece before him like the servant did. Or we could see Abraham as an example. And like Abraham, that we're to learn that as parents, we should not allow our children to marry unbelievers. Maybe that's what we're supposed to take away from this. Or maybe we'll set up Rebecca as the example that we should follow and follow her example of being kind and hospitable and working hard and being willing to go when God says go. And while there's nothing wrong with any of these moral examples, most if not all of them are biblical but they're just not the point of this particular part of the Bible. So another approach that we could use when determining what we're supposed to learn from a passage of Scripture like this is instead of the morality emulation approach, we might use what we could call the redemptive historical approach. Now, the redemptive historical approach is when we consider, consider what God is doing in this passage within the larger context of what God is doing across the landscape of redemptive history. And if we're not careful in this chapter, we'll miss God's actions. We'll miss the Lord's activity in this chapter. Because again, there's lots of characters in this chapter who are, who are acting and decisions and deciding and making choices and doing different things in this narrative. So that if we're not careful, we'll not see the hand of God at work. We'll think that it's just people who are doing things and deciding things and making choices, and we'll miss God's providence overseeing it all. Now, there are some clues in the text that point us to God's providential care and sovereign oversight in this story. Back in verse 7, Abraham says to his servant, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And so Abraham is convinced, and by the way, so is Moses as he's writing this. They're convinced that this sovereign God who led Abraham from Mesopotamia to Canaan will likewise be the one to lead and guide his servant in finding a wife for Isaac. And then in verse 14, of course, uh, the servant puts his fleece out before the Lord. He says, let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say to me, drink, and I will water your camels also. Lord, let her be the one. Let her be the one for my master's son. And then before he finishes asking the Lord for this, a woman comes to the well who does both of those things, and she just happens 
to be the grandniece of Abraham. Coincidence? I think not. Obviously not. And then twice, once in verse 14 and once in verse 44, this servant refers to Rebekah as, quote, the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac, recognizing that the Lord had already appointed the one who would be Isaac's wife. And then, of course, after that, in verse 48, the servant admits that it was the Lord, the God of Abraham, who had, in fact, led him to Rebekah. So it's clear that although, although the characters in the story were real actors who were making real decisions and choices, it was God who was the primary actor in this story. He was the one who led this servant to this specific well in this specific city at that specific time to meet that specific woman who was a part of that specific family. And her family would incredibly admit that clearly it was Yahweh who was at work in all of this. This is the Lord's doing. And we should too. We should also recognize that it was God's providence that was orchestrating all of this. But why? Why was he doing this? How does this fit within the landscape of redemptive history? Well, again, we have to go back to all of the promises that God gave to Abraham. Of course, the promise of offspring to Abraham had already been fulfilled. Isaac was born to them in their old age. And then the promise of land had been partially fulfilled. This small plot of land in Ephraim's field as a deposit of the greater fulfillment that's yet to come. But those other promises that we mentioned, that of Abraham's offspring becoming a great nation, and the promise of his offspring being one day a blessing to all the nations of the earth, those promises are yet to be fulfilled at this point in redemptive history. And that promise that Abraham's offspring, his seed, if you will, would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, if you'll recall, that promise was first hinted at all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When as a result of the fall, God pronounced a curse, not just on the man and the woman, but also on the serpent. He said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your, your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, there is coming one from the seed of the woman who will one day crush the head of the serpent, who is the devil. And we learn that that was the earliest prophecy in Scripture of a Messiah. And that's what Jesus did. The serpent struck his heel on Calvary, on the cross. But in dying and rising again, Jesus defeated the curse of sin and death dealt a death blow to the serpent's head. So at this point in redemptive history, in the Abraham-Isaac narrative, those promises were not yet fulfilled. And the only way that they could be fulfilled is if Isaac gets married and has kids of his own. If not, those promises stop with him. But the problem is his mother's dead. His father's far too old to travel and find a wife for him. He's 40 years old with no prospect of marriage. And so we have this story in chapter 24 of this servant going on this 400-mile mission trip 
in search of a wife for Isaac. And what we've discovered through our exegesis of the text this morning is that God, out of his covenantal love and his promise-keeping faithfulness, he providentially ensured the future fulfillment of these promises by providing Rebekah as a wife for Isaac. So now fast forward and put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites centuries later, wandering in the wilderness, hearing this story for the first time. At that point in redemptive history, they had been freed out of slavery in Egypt, only to become wanderers in the desert for 40 years. Behind them was slavery. In front of them was a land filled with giants and fortified cities. And all around them was desert wilderness. What was their need in that moment? Well, they needed to be encouraged, church, that God was still at work. They needed to be reminded of his covenant-keeping love and his promise-keeping faithfulness. And they needed to know this so that they would entrust themselves to God's providential care to love them and keep them as his children, no matter what was happening in the world around them. They would later need that encouragement yet again during the Assyrian defeat, and then again during the Babylonian captivity. And then again, during the Persian exile, and they would find reassurance in this passage in chapter 24 of Genesis. They would find reassurance here that they owed their very existence as a people to God's providence. Hundreds of years later, as Israel was once again under military occupation, this time by the Roman Empire, again, they would hearken back to this story in chapter 24. And read about God's providential care for his people by ensuring that the seed of the woman would continue. In this story, God reassures his people that he will providentially and sovereignly act among the affairs of man and nature to ensure that the seed of the woman would continue and that his plans would prosper. By the way, it was during this time of Roman occupation that the angel Gabriel appeared to another young virgin and told her that the Lord had chosen her to be the mother of his son. And the angel says to her in Luke chapter one, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. And just as Rebecca responded in this passage with, I will go, so Mary responded to the angel in Luke chapter 1, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This child, of course, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit in her, was the fulfillment of the promise From Genesis 3, verse 15, he, this child, Jesus, he was the seed of the woman who would one day at the cross crush the head of the serpent. Church, in every area, in every era of human history, God's people have, for one reason or another, been tempted to forget that God was at work in their redemption. 
whether it was in the wilderness of Sinai or in the exile of Babylon or the foreign occupation of Rome, God's people have had a need, a need to be reassured that they owe their very existence as God's people to Yahweh's providential care. And that even in the midst of trying circumstances, they could trust in God's providential care. They could trust that he was still at work, orchestrating the actions and decisions of men and women in the world to bring about his sovereign and perfect will. And church, my message to you this morning is that the season that we're in is no different. As the church faces these times of unprecedented uncertainty, where we're tempted to question where God is, when it seems like a virus is spreading unabated throughout the world as if it had a mind of its own and wouldn't be stopped for anything, we're, we're tempted to wonder, where is God? Is he absent? Does he care? And perhaps we're tempted to wonder, what does this mean for us, the church? Will, will this be it for the church? Will she not survive? Church, in times like this, we need to be reminded of our God's covenant-keeping love and his promise-keeping faithfulness, and that we owe our very existence as God's people today to his providential and sovereign oversight over all of human activity and decisions, as well as the inclinations of nature and her evils. Jesus promised us in Matthew 16 that, that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So be encouraged, church. If the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, then neither shall a virus prevail against her. Church, may we be reassured this morning and find encouragement and find confidence in the truth that although there is a lot happening in our world today, our God is still at work. And his providential care is sovereignly orchestrating all that is happening so that it works it out just as he planned. May we reassure ourselves with this truth and may we reassure one another with this truth. And if you're listening this, this morning to this sermon, and you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and burial and resurrection as your only hope to be rescued from uh, the penalty of your own sin, then please allow me to be crystal clear with this passage. God's providential care, his sovereign love, his covenant-keeping, his promise-keeping faithfulness is only for those who will come to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith. Friend, if you refuse Christ, if you reject him, then you can expect no quarter from his father when you meet him. And if that describes you, then right now I just beg of you to consider the claims of Christ and come to him in saving faith, to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, his perfect life, and his substitutionary death on your, on your behalf, as well as his victorious resurrection from the grave, as your only hope to be rescued, to be saved, and to be part of his redeemed. Would you pray with me? 
Gracious and holy God, we are grateful, Father, to be able to turn to a passage of Scripture like this and be reminded of your providence, of your sovereignty, that you are above all things and that you are working all things out for your perfect plan. We're reminded, Father, in Romans 8, 28, that you do this for the good of those who love you and are called according to, to his purpose. So, Lord, all that you're doing in orchestrating the affairs of man, as well as the circumstances of nature, and even the spreading of a virus, Lord, that you're still in control. And that somehow, some way, even though we can't put all the pieces of the puzzle together, you're working this out for our good and your glory. And so we, we pray, Father, that you would remind us of this, that we would be convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt of your providential care for us. And Lord, we pray for those among us who have not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son as their only hope for rescue from what we all deserve because of our rebellion against you. Lord, would you give them the faith, the trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope to be rescued, saved, and redeemed. We thank you for this, Father. We pray that you would keep us safe, that you would keep us grounded in you and in your word until you bring us back together again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.